This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Let's resume our study. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 6. We begin in a new location this evening. Prophecy in itself is a very complex subject, and you can never you can never get it all in one go. In fact, I've been doing this for over 25 years, and it's amazing. You know, you can even read John 3.16 many, many, many times, and if you're a student of the Word, God can show you something new every time you read it. And that's, that's the way that I approach this. Uh, certainly not somebody that is scholared and skilled with it, because there are great mysteries of the Word that I still ask God, uh, the Holy Spirit, to show me. And so I, I want you to know that now that we have crossed from chapter 5 into chapter 6, these particular verses, chapters, are, are along those lines of being very, very complicated. So um, I hope my prayer is that you get some of it. All right, I'm going to read for you now. In chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, we'll talk about it for a few moments and see where the Lord takes us in this subject tonight. John, you know, he is on the island of Patmos. The year is A.D. 96. He is there because of preaching the gospel. It's really a death sentence that was placed upon him, but he miraculously got off of Patmos, and uh, theologians tell us that uh, he died somewhere in Ephesus. That's not what we're talking about tonight in depth, so let's look at verse number one. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder and one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, I don't know if this is the verse that Sister Vicki was thinking about when she chose a title for her Bible study. But if she didn't, this would be a good one. Come and see. You probably heard a lot about David Koresh and his uh, cult and the proclamations that he had. Primarily, he focused his Waco, Texas ministry on one theme. It was from the book of Revelation, but, but predominantly it was about the seven seals. Now, he didn't make that up. The seven seals, John does talk about them in Revelation, but he had, he had quite a distortion of the Holy Word of God. As we look into this particular chapter, these seals, they are broken one by one. And you heard me say Sunday morning, can you imagine the earth when the restrainer, he that letteth, that let, when he's taken out, the Holy Spirit, when he's taken out of this earth, you can imagine the chaos. It's going to take place when the Holy Spirit is evacuated 
who leaves this earth in the rapture with the saints. Now, here at this point, because we're talking about uh, the rapture is already taking place in chapter 4, and uh, the Holy Spirit has been taken out with the church, the believers. And so what is beginning to happen is that the restraint is increasingly removed from the earth. And it's sort of like, the this is probably an easy way for you to get it, particularly in the days of Noah. The Bible says that the people of the earth were living so wickedly that things were being done that was really beyond imagination. And here in this scene, as we move into chapter 6, that's what we're seeing now on the earth. Uh, the rights of the people, the peacemaker will be talking about that in just a moment. Vile human passions are predominantly given free reign on the earth, and the earth is now going to fully reap the full harvest of man's sin. That's where they, this is. And the interesting thing, and we will see this unfold, is that the lamb is connected with the judgment or the judgments under the seals. So if you're taking notes, I, I, I understand this is complicated, uh, and we have, we can't stay in one place forever, but you, you have to understand that we're talking about seals, we're talking about judgments, and we're talking about trumpets. All, all kinds of things are, are going, uh, in, in a, in a mode almost like with trains without brakes. So try to get this. The lamb, is connected with the judgments under the seals. And I realize that I'm going to be probably speaking Greek and Hebrew now. Uh, it's going to be interpreted as that, even though the New Testament was written entirely in the Greek. But you, 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 might, you might leave here scratching your head and say, what is he talking about? I'm going to try to break it down as simple as I can for you. The Lamb is connected with the judgments under the seals. The angels, and I'm going to be speaking on angels briefly on Sunday morning, but the angels are connected with the judgments under the trumpets. Okay? If you can get this, the lamb is connected with the judgments under the seals, and the angels are connected with the judgments under the trumpets. And then God himself is connected with the vials or the bowls of his wrath. So there are three components to this thing. The lamb and his judgments under the seals. The angels are connected with the judgments under the trumpets. And then God himself is connected with the vials or the bowls of his Wrath. Now, another thing that I notice in verse number one, if you look carefully here, John is saying, and I saw, notice that. These, these 
words are very important to me as we break them down and put them under the microscope uh, and look at it very carefully. Now, the first four, listen to this, the first four of the seven seals are categorized by the living creatures and living horses. This is important. The last three seals, there are seven, the last three seals do not mention creatures or horses. Now, as we study this, we'll find out that the first seal was the voice of thunder. And it is the voice of Jesus. And so John, he immediately responded to this voice as it was the voice of thunder. He responds and his response is, this is amazing. Wow, come and see, come and see. And that's what he's saying here. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. All right, now, verse number two. And this is where we start overlapping a little bit in the study tonight, going into uh, some of the uh, aspects of our sermon on Sunday as we preach on the 144,000. In verse number two, we find those words again, those same first three words that appears in verse number one, we find here in verse number two. And let's read the verse. And I saw and behold a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now look at this. Immediately after the rapture, the Antichrist, as you heard me preach Sunday, he steps up to the microphone of the world and he captivates the attention of the world. Now look at this. John said he saw a white horse and the one who sat upon it. This white horse was a mighty horse. It was, now look at this. This is important to remember because this, the rider of this white horse is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus will return in the revelation on a white horse, we're going to see that in just a moment in the scripture. This particular horse, look at it again. In fact, I think one of my points Sunday, I can't remember if it's point two or three, but it's called the day of the horseman. Uh, and it, he, John says, and I saw him, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Now, this is easy for somebody to take out of context and say, well, I've always heard that Jesus was going to be riding a white horse and we're all going to be riding white horses. That is true. He will and we will. But to say that that happening is here takes it out of context. This is not talking about Jesus. It's not talking about the bride. It's not talking about the church. This is talking about the Antichrist and how he comes out riding a white horse. And uh, he is he is coming as a peacemaker. And uh, so let me give you the, the uh, verse in comparison, I guess you could say. In Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11. 
Let's look at that scripture. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now, you have to remember this, that the Antichrist does everything to simulate what Jesus does. But it's it's done in mockery. It's to imitate. This scripture here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, this is Jesus. John said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Now, and then see, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is the revelation. This is when the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, let me see if I can get this scripture. Uh, so let's try Zechariah chapter 14 and verse or 4, 14. Let's look at there. Uh, let's go with uh, 14, 4, 4, now 4, 14. Let's look at 4, 14. Uh, can you get that for me real quick there? All right. Um, let's look at uh, 14, 4 real quickly here. Let me get this straight. That's the one I want. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east, toward the west, and there shall be a great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. All right, so keep this in mind. Let's go back to Revelation 19.11. Because right here, this is the beginning of the revelation. What we just read in Zechariah chapter 14, verse number 4, is where the Lord Jesus actually sets his feet down on the earth. Keep in mind that in the rapture, he does not set his feet on the earth. The rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. The revelation, this is where the revelation begins. This verse is seven years after the rapture. This is the beginning of the revelation. And as the heavens opened, John said, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. This is the Lord Jesus. He will be riding a white horse. And Jude says this, behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his saints. We also be riding white horses with him. But here's the thing. When the Lord Jesus begins this aspect, when he does this, it's going to be a great conquest. It is here in this event when he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. It's sort of like this, when he, when he touches down. And we just read it in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. The mountain, the Mount of Olives, is going to cleave in two. And the Lord Jesus, he is leading the host of heaven down the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And in this, with the spoken word, he is going to defeat the Antichrist. When this battle of Armageddon takes place, he's going to lead the host of heaven, the bride, the church, down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, between the Mount of Olives and the eastern gate. 
There's a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. He is going to lead us across the Kidron Valley. He is going to go through what is now sealed, the eastern gate. And after this battle of Armageddon is over with, the Lord Jesus, you've heard the song when the saints go marching in. So he leads us through the eastern gate and the Lord Jesus takes his place on the throne of David where he will rule and reign from that aspect for 1,000 years. And we're going to be talking about in the last message, the king is coming. So when the Lord does this, he sits on the throne and he is going to assume all the sovereignty of the earth. But when this seal is open that we're talking about here in Revelation 6, there will be several years before the kingdom of Jesus is set up in power and seven of those years. So the rider of this horse, it's important to keep it straight, but the rider of this horse in Revelation 6 verse 2 is the Antichrist. But I want you to keep in mind something here. We're going to talk about him in just a few moments. Again, the Antichrist tries to emulate everything that Jesus does. Now look at this. This is interesting. This is a study all in itself. I don't have time to spend a lot of time here, but it's worth mentioning. John said that he was given, the rider of this horse had a bow. That's interesting. Look at it very carefully. He had a bow. But nowhere in the scripture does it say that he had arrows. He had a bow, but he didn't have arrows. And why is that? Because he's coming in, in the scripture now, usually when a war was fought in, in these scrimmages of the Old Testament primarily, and we'll see some, I want to give you three, uh, I think, spectacular verses on this subject. But when we read about these scrimmages that take place, and David read some great verses about it tonight, um, you, we hear a lot about bows and arrows and spears and lances and all of these things. And usually, typically in the Old Testament, when the bow is mentioned, the arrow is mentioned. Let me show you what I mean. In Numbers chapter 24, verse number 8. The word says this. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. All right, let's look at another one. Psalms 45, verse number 5. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. And then uh, one we don't frequent a lot in Zechariah 9, 14. The word says, And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. All right, so usually we find with the bow, we find the arrows. 
or vice versa. But here in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, look at it carefully again. There is no mention of an arrow, only a bow. Now, what does that signify? What does that typify? What does it mean? A bow with no arrow. Well, it is a bloodless victory. Keep that in mind. It is a bloodless victory. When the Antichrist takes his place on center stage of the earth, immediately after the rapture, he's not coming in as some type of foreign power with tanks and missiles and submarines and battleships. That's not how he is going to win the world. He's coming in with a bow, but no arrows. That's meaning he's coming in as a peacemaker. He's not carrying any artillery with him. An arrow of destruction. He's not going to do that. And so look at this. He's not only coming in with a just a bow, But the word says a crown was given unto him. Look at it. And I saw and behold a white horse. That's not the horse of the revelation. This is the horse of the the post-rapture. And it's the Antichrist. He that sat on him had a bow, no arrows. And a crown was given unto him. Now look at that. Now here's the significance. The crown is given to the rider of the white horse before the victory. That's imperative, before the victory. And so this is not a victor's crown. He didn't do anything to receive this crown. This crown is given to the rider of the white horse, who is the Antichrist, Before the battle, it's a bloodless crown. It's not a victor's crown. Now, this particular crown, it it typifies or it denotes that royal dignity and imperial power is bestowed, is given upon this distinguished rider of this white horse. So in other words, this is, is a... The the Antichrist comes in riding the white horse, which is a symbol of peace. He comes in as a peacemaker. and But this peace was not established from a scrimmage on a battlefield. His crown was not given as a trophy. This peace comes without bloodshed. And I will tell you, right now, this world, and even more so when the rapture takes place, is looking for some type of superhero to bring peace to the world. And that's what this Antichrist is going to be doing. I want to look at him and some of the things that he is going to be doing uh, during this particular time. So the first three and a half years of the reign of the Antichrist, he comes in on a white horse, bringing a false peace with him. This false peace really is going to initiate from a 
false peace treaty that he's going to make with the nation of Israel. He's going to deceive them. They're going to be as gullible as they have ever been. And they're going to go for it, believing that he, he is the one we have been looking for. He is the Messiah. But I want you to see this now, and I want you to, we're going to shift a gear altogether here. And I want us to look at John's gospel. Turn there with me. And I want you to look at chapter 17, and I want us to look at verse number 12. Uh, because I'm going to give you some characteristics of the Antichrist and some comparisons. And I want to give you, some of this comes from deep study. Some of it comes from surface stuff. But I, I want to give it to you in the few minutes that we have left tonight. So if you're looking in John chapter 17, verse number 12, I want you to look at these these words. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou gavest me, I have kept. Jesus is talking, by the way. He said, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but or except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition. Now, this is talking about, in this particular text, Jesus is talking about Judas Iscariot. This is important. But Jesus also gave Judas another name. In John chapter 6, notice this in verse number 70 and 71. Jesus answered and said unto them, Have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot. In the previous verse, Jesus referred to him as being the son of perdition. Here, Jesus is saying in the very next verse, he is saying that he is, the word says, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. But go back to verse number 70. Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. So, Jesus called Judas a devil. He also was in reference to him as being the son of perdition. Now, this is where some theologians differ, some scholars differ, and that's fine. Because what I'm telling you this, listen, whether you agree with this or not, doesn't make you any more saved than what you are. If, you, if you're saved, whether you agree or disagree, this has nothing to do with your eternal soul. So whether you agree with it, if you're saved, you're saved forever. And if you lost and, then, and you die lost, you'll be eternally lost. This is not the plan of salvation. So the point being is this. We're talking about the Antichrist, going back to Revelation 6. Jesus called Judas a devil. So listen carefully. The son of perdition is actually the devil in disguise. 
The son of perdition is the devil in disguise. Now I want you to see something. I want you to notice something very interesting here. If you go to Revelation chapter 11, verse number 7. Now, this is a Bible study. That's why we're running all over the road. Uh, and you have to pay very close attention here because i got three minutes to tie knot on this thought. In Revelation chapter 11, verse number 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Look carefully at this verse. The Bible says that the beast is going to ascend. Ascend means to come up, to go up. Here it means come out. Will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now, how did the beast, this is the question, how did the beast get into the bottomless pit to begin with? If the beast is going to come out of the pit, how did he get in the pit to come out of the pit? And this is imperative, I think, into revealing who the Antichrist is. Because the Bible describes him to be the son of perdition. And let me, let me emphasize something here. Judas is the only person in the Bible, all 66 books. Judas Iscariot is the only person in all 66 books that is ever called the son of perdition. And you have just read that yourself. And I want you to see something very interesting here. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 25, how did the beast get in the pit to come out of the pit? In Acts chapter 1 verse 25, this also is in reference to Judas, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, look at this, that he might go to his own place. Jesus was saying, as a result of what Judas did, and think about this, think about how Judas, he had just as much of an opportunity to truly, from his heart, receive Christ as the Messiah, the, the saving Lord. And you might say, well, did he not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? He absolutely did. The Bible says that even the devils believe. So Judas, listen, as he walked with these 11 men every day, he was present when Jesus performed his miracles. He was present when Jesus preached his sermons. He was present when Jesus taught. Scripture says he was the treasurer of the group. He carried the money bag with him. He had conversations with these other. He had just as much opportunity to believe with his heart as he did with his head. But he sincerely chose not to do it. And as a result of that, 
Now, did that come as a surprise to Jesus? No, it didn't because he was God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God in the flesh. So Jesus had omniscience. He knew all things. And he knew that Judas was going to do this. And he also knew that Judas, no matter what, walking with these disciples, hearing Jesus talk himself. And listen, think about this, and I'm done. I've got to stop here tonight. Come back next week. We'll get back to it. When Judas, think, think, think with me now. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, he said, I want you to pray, watch and pray. And he told Peter, James, and John, he said, come with me. I want you to come with me. Let's go a little farther. The deal had already been made. The money bag had already been placed in the hands of Judas. And they were all demanding a sign. And Judas said, look, it's going to be very, I don't want to mention his name in a group of men. These guys, that Peter here, he especially, he's going to go crazy. He's going to go nuts on you guys. You better be watching out for him. He said, so, listen, I'm just going to walk up to him and kiss him on the cheek. I'm a whisper in his ear. But the sign will be, I will kiss him on his cheek. Now think about this. A man. Now didn't Jesus say he's the bread of life? He's the water of life. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the gentle shepherd. Look. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. Judas kissed the door of heaven, died, and went to hell. Think about that. He had just as much of an opportunity to believe with his heart as these other men. But Jesus knew from the foundation of the world, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God the Father said, let us make man in our own image in the Garden of Eden. That word, as I've explained to you before, is a triune word. It means three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They were all present in the Garden of Eden during the creative works of God. God has always known, hey, somewhere down the line, Judas is going to be born somewhere down the line. He's going to be chosen somewhere down the line. He's going to betray. And somewhere down the line, he's going to kiss the door of heaven. He's going to die and go to hell. Wasn't a surprise. God knew it. And this might be the question. Why did God pick Judas to go to hell? If God's saving grace is open, for everyone, and God doesn't pick people to go to heaven. He doesn't pick people to go to hell. Hell, whosoever will may come. That's true. Listen, but God is omniscient. He knows. He has foreknowledge. And in the omniscience of God, in the foreknowledge of God, he has always known that no matter what, even kissing the door of heaven, no matter what, Judas was not going to believe 
with his heart. So therefore, God allowed it. Well, isn't this an interesting subject here? It truly is. So we'll park here, and we'll pick it up next week. Amen. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.